Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hello, I'm Simon Long, The Economist's finance and economics editor, and this is Money Talks. Later in the program, the biennial Paris Air Show and how buyers are striking a hard deal in the halls at Le Bourget as they cast an eye over what's new in aviation this year. The exuberance of the upward swing of the aviation cycle is now over, and people are thinking about all the new planes being built at the moment going to cause overcapacity in the industry. And in Saudi Arabia, the stock market flotation of Aramco is meant to modernise the kingdom's economy. But will meddling by the deputy crown prince get in the way? In fact, if you're an investor, you have to worry about Aramco being used as a kind of tool of OPEC policy. But to start, Barclays Bank and four of its former executives were on Tuesday charged with fraud, a result of allegations about their actions during the financial crisis in 2008. The case, brought by the UK's serious fraud office, relates to the billions the bank raised from investors in the Gulf state of Qatar designed to help it avoid the British government bailout, to which some of its peers had to resort. But what exactly happened nine years ago? And why have the company's actions been investigated? I'm joined by The Economist's banking editor, Patrick Lane. Patrick, is it possible to outline what these charges are? As you say, Barclays raised an awful lot of money in June and October 2008 from a range of investors. A good chunk of that money came from Qatar. Now, At the same time, Barclays entered into what were called advisory service agreements, under which £322 million was payable over five years by Barclays, and it also made available a $3 billion loan facility to the state of Qatar. So, in essence, it's suggested that there's a sort of quid pro quo here. In other words, that the bank and certain executives, in order to make the bank look more healthy than it was arranged these sort of side deals. Now, it's not just any executives, right? It goes right to the top of the bank, which is unusual. Yes, I mean, exactly. So you've got the most prominent, of course, is John Varley, who's the chief executive of the bank at the uh, the time, who had married into one of the families that had been part of the bank for for many, many years. So he's, he's the most prominent... There's also Roger Jenkins, who was the former executive chairman of investment banking and investment management in the Middle East. A man called Tom Kalaris, who's, who was the chief executive of Barclays Wealth and Investment Management. And, uh, and Richard Both, who was the former European head of financial institutions. So these are guys who are very, very senior, senior in the bank. I mean, it, we should say Mr. Mr. Varley and, and Mr. Jenkins face three counts and, and Mr. Kalaris and Mr. Both face only, face only one. Two of them have already r- reportedly vigorously denied the investigations. The other two, as far as I know, haven't yet commented. So this is remarkable, isn't it? A decade after the crisis, it is still having repercussions right at the top of the British banking industry. Yes, that's that's true. I mean, not just at the top of the British banking industry. Okay, this is the first time you've seen senior executives, or certainly the chief executive of a bank charged with a criminal offence. But if you look at this more broadly, if you stand right back and say, look, this is nine years after the crisis, RBS, which did receive state money, is still in state hands, 72, 73% owned by the state, has lost money hand over fist for nine years. Lloyd's has only just come out of state ownership. In the United States, where we thought this was all settled, the Trump administration is now revisiting the regulatory settlement that was put in place 
in 2010, two years after the crisis. So everything is back up in the air there. We've seen a Spanish bank only last week have have to be rescued by Santander, the biggest bank in Spain, because it because the, the European Central Bank was convinced that it was going to go under. We we may see two small Italian banks get state bailouts in the next few days, not long after the approval of the bailout of Monte dei Paschi di Siena, just at the beginning of this month. So, you know, financial crisis cast really, really long shadows. And, you know, nearly a decade after it, we're nowhere near out from under the shadows of this one. Now, these charges come from not the regulator, but the serious fraud office. That's a body with real teeth, right? It it is, but... uh, don't forget, it has taken five years to bring this. And also the Conservative government was planning to fold the SFO into a broader prosecutorial agency. So the SFO has been under a certain amount, it, I suppose, has been under a certain amount of pressure to, to, to produce a result. To, to, well, not to produce a result. You don't know what the outcome is going to be. But to, but to lay charges, I suppose, and show it has teeth. Although, you know, this is a criminal investigation. Criminal investigations take time. At the same time, Barclays has also faced civil proceedings from the regulator. And that regulator, the Financial Conduct Authority, said that in 2013 that it intended to fine Barclays £50 million over these alleged offences. Barclays said that it would resist the fine, but then the case was put into abeyance because the SFO was carrying on its own investigation. Now that investigation is complete, the civil investigation by the FCA is back on, although you might not expect too much to happen too quickly because, of course, there will now be a criminal trial. The hearings are due to start in a magistrate's court on July the 3rd, and you'd have thought that if the FCA were said too much, then that could possibly be prejudicial to the outcome. So maybe we shouldn't expect too much action on that for, for, for the time being. So, Patrick, it's, it's a scandal that won't go away. For the financial industry as a whole? Yes, that's true. Next, the Paris Air Show opens its doors to the Great Unwashed this coming Friday, but for buyers, it's already open, let in en masse to the vast halls at Le Bourget to have a look at what's new this year. At the last show in 2015, Airbus and Boeing, the world's biggest playmakers, sold $107 billion worth of planes. But is the airline business thriving this time round? I'm joined by The Economist's industry correspondent, Charles Reed. Charles, I understand that this year you're suffering from reduced hospitality and less space for the media. Does that signify a, a downturn in the industry as a whole? That's partly because the show is much less about selling planes and much more about developing new products. And partly that's inevitable because they've sold so many planes for the last few years that the plane makers have relatively few spots to build new planes in the, in the next few years. But it also signifies that uh, the exuberance of the upward swing of the aviation is now over and people are thinking about all the new planes being built at the moment going to cause overcapacity in the industry which is bad news for both airlines and the people who finance them. What are uh, Airbus and, and Boeing respectively pushing this year? What new products are they particularly keen to open a market for? Well Boeing has released a new stretched version of its uh, narrow body aircraft which does short haul routes so this is the 737 max 10 now they've released this because they're losing market share in that segment to airbus's a321 neo which is a slightly bigger plane which can do longer routes and so boeing has designed and built this stretched version of its existing plane in order to grab some of that market back 
Boeing has also been talking about potentially releasing a slightly bigger airplane than that, which can fly much longer routes. But that's not going to be that's not going to be released until the 2020s at the earliest. And what about the longer haul, wide-bodied aircraft? Airbus is looking at its range of wide-body aircraft at the moment. In particular, it's looking at its largest one, the A380 Super Jumbo. This hasn't had any new orders last year or so far this year. And, and so in order to pep up interest in the plane, they're releasing a new version called the A380 Plus, which is essentially the existing A380, but with new design which allows the airline to squeeze even more seats inside and new fuel efficiency improvements such as winglets on the end of the plane which reduce air drag and fuel usage. Whether these will boost sales, however, is another question. It will these improvements will only reduce fuel burn by three or four percent. And so whether this is enough to make airlines bite the bullet is is another question entirely. And, and where are the growth markets, Charles? I, su- I suppose it's still India, Southeast Asia, China? Well, those are the big long-term markets. And certainly uh, over the last few years, Airbus and Boeing have provided up their predictions for how many planes that these regions will use, in particular China, which is probably the biggest, over the next 20 years, going to be the biggest single market for new aircraft. However, many analysts are, in the shorter term are getting more pessimistic. Although there is very strong growth in demand for air travel and above average over the long term demand uh, increases in demand for air travel at the moment, there's increasing signs of overcapacity all over the world. Not only in the Middle East, where the big Middle Eastern superconnectors are now in trouble, but also in Europe, where it appears that Brian Air is like Brian Air and EasyJet are buying too many planes. In Asia, in Southeast Asia, which has big problems with overcapacity, and and even in China. And so some people are becoming increasingly pessimistic in the next few years. But in the longer term, in the next 10, 20 years, are thinking that there's going to be more demand than they previously thought for new aircraft. Charles Reed, The Economist's industry correspondent, thanks very much for joining us. If you have any thoughts or opinions on what you hear on Money Talks, such as the problems Barclays are facing with the UK's serious fraud office, or what's being sold in the skies above Paris of this week's air show, then do get in touch. You can contact us on Twitter at Economist Radio, or you can always send an email to radio at economist.com. Finally, Saudi Arabia and oil. The stock market flotation of Aramco, the world's biggest IPO, is meant to modernise the Saudi economy. The Deputy Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, once gloated at the prospect of creating an oasis of Thatcherism in the Desert Kingdom. The IPO is meant to bring transparency and market forces to a business and a kingdom shrouded in secrecy. I'm joined by The Economist's energy and commodities editor, Henry Trix. Henry, where are we now with this IPO? It's been talked about for, what, a year now? We are um, coming up to the key moment uh, later on this summer when they decide where to list the company. Um, at present, it's only the stock exchange in, in Riyadh um, that we know will will have some shares, but that's tiny. This is an enormous flotation. The company that is um, is is coming to market with a target valuation of of two trillion dollars. That's about the GDP of Italy. 
And they're just listing 5% of that would raise about $100 billion. So the expectation is that New York or London would be the places to list. And there's a battle going on between them as to where that should be. Bragging rights are huge and the amount of money for investment bankers and everyone else involved in those listings has got everyone salivating. So there's quite a lot of excitement around the issue now. But it's also a time when the oil price is falling very dramatically. And this whole question about the oil price, as well as all the other aspects of the listing, the relationship between Saudi Aramco and Saudi Arabia, the kingdom itself, is raising all sorts of questions about the appetite for people to actually invest when it does come to markets. And who's calling the shots at the Saudi end? Is Mohammed bin, bin Salman himself in, very much in charge? He's certainly the uh, the overlord, the orchestrator of it. He was the one who um, who broke the news to us about eighteen months ago and surprised even his own um, even his own countrymen with with the news. He's um, he, yeah he's an extraordinarily ambitious man and is obviously trying to to bring about very impressive changes and modernization in the Saudi economy. Uh, there is a, um, a sense that he may be um, perhaps overstepping the mark a little bit. You know, he's the one who set this extremely punchy valuation that is really, you know, quite hard to achieve. This is the $2 trillion figure, which has caught an awful lot of attention. But I mean, how unrealistic is it? Well, the valuation that many people have given would be possibly half that or at best three quarters of it. Of course, all the investment bankers who've um, who've gone trying to uh, win a part of this IPO mandate have also said, surprise, surprise, you know, two trillion is about the amount that we think it's worth, too. But um, it was telling that uh, a month or so ago, the government was forced to announce it was cutting the tax rate on Aramco from 85% to 50%, which basically triples the profit of the company. So that obviously increases the valuation. There seems to be an effort right now to do whatever it takes to get as close to that $2 trillion valuation as they can. And we've talked on this program before about the leading role Saudi Arabia plays in OPEC and its efforts to get the oil price up, which have not have misfired rather badly. I mean, how big a factor in that do you think the Aramco question is? Is the Aramco tail wagging the OPEC dog? There's very much a sense amongst other OPEC countries uh, that uh, not just in the back of Saudi Arabia's mind, but in the front of Saudi Arabia's mind is the importance of getting an oil price that's high enough by 2018 or so when this listing is supposed to happen to actually, you know, to make it a a great success. Clearly, there are other motives as well behind the effort to shore up the oil price, you know, a low oil price such as the one that, you know, I mean, basically the decline in the price of oil that we're seeing in the last few weeks really does pose big budgetary problems for you know Saudi Arabia and everyone else so there are reasons from an economic perspective that they want the, the price to improve but you know as i say in the forefront of their minds as well is the fact that they want this ipo to be a success and they need an oil price substantially above where it is now to achieve that but it sounds from what you're saying as if their efforts are being somewhat counterproductive that mbs's own 
meddling in the in the market is is likely to undermine confidence in the in the in the company and the and the IPO. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, in fact, if you're an investor, you have to worry about Aramco being used as a kind of tool of OPEC policy because, I mean, right now what Aramco is facing is the worst of all worlds. It's not just that the oil price is falling, but because... Saudi Arabia has basically agreed to cut production in order to try and rescue, in a failed attempt to try and rescue the oil price. Aramco is also losing market share to producers in America, to even the Iranians, their arch enemies. So, um, so it's an uncomfortable position, I think, at the moment in Dahran, where, where, where Aramco is based. My thanks to The Economist's energy and commodities editor, Henry Trix. And that's all for Money Talks this week. To read more about the topics discussed in this show, pick up the latest issue of The Economist or do visit economist.com. And do join us again next time. In London, this is The Economist.